Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. So we have a, a very special couple in the Happy Minion that's going to be moving to Denver. So if you're, if you're in the Denver area, look out for the Fiedler family who's coming your way, and Moshe and, and Bryna and, and their kids. We gave them a, a special blessing, and I'll share that with you and dedicate this talk to them because they really have been such a, a blessing and, and have helped to build the Happy Minion. We've been, we've been essentially homeless since the pandemic started, and we've been meeting in people's backyards, and it's been, you know, a tough go, although we've been the the beneficiaries of awesome, awesome kindness, especially from the Holy Freed family. Unbelievable. But, but anyway, getting us back indoors in a place, especially in Los Angeles, it's where the rents are just skyrocketing, and the availability is really limited. That's a a really hard combination if you're like a little tiny minion, right, to, to overcome. But we've been able to secure a place right in the heart of the Pico Robertson neighborhood. So so everyone should should come and visit us. We'll be in our new place, which is across the street from where we used to be in the Karate Academy. So <laughs> anyway, come and see us. Come and see us. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be opening up our doors in, in, in around end of summer. But anyway, here's the blessing that we gave them, which is drawn from the mitzvah of Orla. So everybody knows that if you plant a fruit tree, you have to wait three years before you can eat from the tree. So, so starting in the fourth year, then, then the fruit becomes permissible to you. So here's the question. You ready? A really interesting question of Jewish law. And you can ask this to people at your Shabbos table, or you'll get a lot of very interesting answers. Here's the question. You've got a tree. It's gone through this whole process. You've waited three years. It's in the fourth year. The fruit is now permissible to you. Now, what happens if you dig up that tree and you move it to another place? Do you have to wait three years all over again or not? And so the reason why I I use this as a blessing is because it's about moving, right? You understand? So the answer is, in classic Jewish fashion, it depends. But what it depends on is is truly fascinating. It depends on how much dirt you bring with you from the initial place of the tree. In other words, if you bring a lot of dirt with you, and I don't know the exact measurement, but if you bring a good clump with you from the original place of the tree, to the new place, then you don't have to wait three years all over again. If you don't, then you do have to wait three years all over again. So my blessing to the, to the Fiedlers is that they should take all the love, all the love of the community, and that they should bring it with them to their new place so that they can just hit the ground running, right? And just start in the most beautiful, like, just flowing way. And that that should be a blessing for all of us together. Amen. This week's Parsha starts off with a very curious phraseology. It's talking about taking a, a census of the tribe of the Gershonis. That's a, a section of the, the tribe of Levi. And it says, count them to take a census. And yet, the language that the Torah uses is to raise up their heads. It seems pretty straightforward. If you want to count them or take a census, just say count them or take a census. What is this sort of like very mysterious language, raise up their heads, and how does that mean to count? That, that's, that's the question. So I'm going to give two answers right now. The first answer is something that we know from Tanakh and many different sources, which is a very sort of mystical idea, which is that if the Jewish people count each other, that it brings a plague among the people. 
And you've got an example of this in the time of King David and, and other examples. And so we, we, don't, we don't count each other. For instance, whenever they wanted a count, a person would give a half a shekel. So that way you're counting these half a shekels instead of, instead of the people themselves. And the Talmud says something very, very interesting, which is that people are not numbers. And that's very deep. There are many ways to understand that. But the first thing I want to look into is why does it bring a curse among the Jewish people to count each other? Like, what is the correlation between those two things? We, we just had the holiday of Shavuos. And, you know, for the past several years, I've been living with this question. Every time we start counting the Omer, the Torah says, count 50 days from, from the time you leave Egypt to the time you receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. So every day we've got this mitzvah to, to count another day. And you would think that the culmination of this mitzvah would be us in shul going, Baruch Hashem Omer. Today is the 50th day of the Omer. And then if you were at the happy meeting, everyone would start dancing and be really happy and sort of like, we made it, we did it, right? And yet, what happens? We only count to 49 and then we say, okay, we're good. <laughs> so it seems to upend the entire idea of the mitzvah. Right? Let's, let's count to the number 50. Well, why don't we do it? So it's because, you know, there are different Kabbalistic maps of the universe. And in one of them, the 50th gate, the Shar Hamishim, stands for the top of heaven. And as such, 50 is like infinite. Remember, the 50th day is the day that God gives us the Torah. And the Torah, so to speak, Kaviyocho, is the mind of God. It's absolutely infinite. So there's this quantum leap between the number 49 and 50. Or if you want to put it in other terms, there's this dividing line between the finite and the infinite. When you go from 49, you go from the finite to the infinite. And you can't put a number on the infinite. If you, if you count 50 like you counted 49, you're completely not understanding this concept of the 50th gate, which is beyond, 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 beyond. In fact, it's actually a huge leap backwards because in a delusional way, you're suggesting that you can grasp the infinite, which we can't. So we don't even go through the, the charade of putting a number on it because it's beyond parameters. Okay, now with that in mind, let's get back to our question, because with this model, I think we can understand why we don't count people. And the answer that I'd like to suggest is, what is your essence? What is a person? A person is, in the, in the deepest sense, a person is this soul. It's an articulated aspect of godliness, right? in your own unique package. The Gemara says in, in different places, and the Medr says in different places, differences between human beings and God, right? Like, I'm sure there's a limitless list. But one of the examples that they give is that when people mint something, like imagine like making coins, you stamp out coins, every coin looks like the other one. But when God mints people, when God makes people, no two people have the same face. Isn't that interesting? Every coin looks the same. No two people look the same. Because every single person is absolutely unique. There was never a you before, and there's never a you that's going to happen again. And even more amazingly, within this uniqueness of your own construct, there's never been a moment like this present moment right now. Your entire life, there was never a moment like right now, and there's never going to be a moment like this right now again. So you are like basically this fountain of uniqueness. No one has ever existed like you before, and every single moment that you're alive has never existed like it is before through this construct that's never existed before. So all you are is unique. It's amazing. It's amazing. Which means that 
If every single moment is one of a kind, like don't let it slip away. There was one thing my father really, really didn't like, and that was killing time. Like some, sometimes people say, oh, we got to, uh, it's not starting for another half an hour. We got a half an hour to kill. That was like, don't say that in front of my father. Time to kill? You crazy? You crazy? So each person is a soul, and each person has that number 50 attached to them because you are an emanation of godliness. See, where do people get mixed up in the world, other religions? Man has godliness within him, but man is not God. You understand that? That's a very big, giant theological point. You have godliness within you. That's your soul. But you are not God. And, you know, you don't have to look far to see how that idea has gotten confused and distorted by, by otherwise, hopefully, sincere people. So anyway... If you have the number 50 inside of you, if you as a person have this dimension of infinity inside of you, how can I count you? Do you understand? Do you see the parallel between counting to the number 49 and not 50 and not counting people? Because how can you put a number on the infinite when I'm talking about another human being, another revelation of godliness? And to do so to limit it, to try to put parameters around another person in this way, is essentially a curse. That would bring something so harsh? Yes, because you're undermining the essence of, of the purpose of the world. Okay, now, I want to give you another answer. So the first answer is we don't want to count because we don't want to limit the infinity of your soul, basically. That's number one. Number two, I want to say something deep. What does it mean to raise up someone's head? And again, that's the code that the Torah is using for counting a person, to raise up their head. Okay, what's the connection? So to raise up a person's head means, on one level, to give them self-esteem. When for Yechidis, that's a, a private meeting with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, people noticed as every single person walked out of the room, they stood straighter. Isn't that interesting? They left the meeting with the Rebbe, like, with their heads raised. Do you understand? They recognized the godliness within themselves more. And that reflected themselves in terms of their physical posture. They stood up straighter. Their heads were raised, so to speak. Do you understand? So now let's, let's think this through. If you can raise up another person's head, do you know what happens? They then realize that they exist. And once you have brought them into existence, now you can count them. Now they're there to be counted because now they themselves are really there. See, you can be there and absolutely not be there. You can be a shadow of yourself. But when your head is raised up and you realize, hey, I count, I'm here. Well, now you have, through giving them self-esteem, you have, so to speak, summoned them into existence and now they can be counted. Now, Reb Shlomo had a phrase for this. And this is a very awesome thing that everyone should be aware of and that we can do on a regular basis. And this is one of the biggest mitzvahs a person can do. You ready? He would call it giving life to another person. By greeting another person, by giving them self-esteem, by saying something positive to everyone you meet, even if you meet them online in the street, even if your conversation with them 
is like 30 seconds or less. You can say something positive to every, every single person you see. Hey, you look great. I'm so glad to see you. Wow. Yeah. I never thought I'd run into you. How have you been? All of these things give a person self-esteem and literally give them life. They, you, you are summoning them into existence. And my favorite story, which relates to this, which uh, I've shared before, but as Reb Shlomo would say, it's always good to hear again. Reb Shlomo was having breakfast with this person. They were standing outside the restaurant. A person who they both knew was walking down the street. And Reb Shlomo's, you know, compatriot looks to her and says, this is how he greets her. You look terrible, right? Can you, can you imagine, like, if you know anything about Reb Shlomo, he would greet people with such love, you know? So this other person is saying, you look terrible. Like, you can imagine Reb Shlomo's jumping out of his skin. Reb Shlomo goes to work. He goes, no, 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 you look great. You, you know, gives her lots of covet, lots of honor and everything like this. Okay, she walks on. Sometime later, days, weeks, months, whatever it is, she says, she sees Reb Shlomo again. She says, wish me a mazel tov. He goes, mazel tov, what happened? She says, do you remember when you saw me on the street? He says, yeah. She says, I was on my way to a man's house who had proposed marriage to me. I was on my way to his house to tell him I don't need your charity. Can you imagine? And she said, after you said all those nice things to me, I thought maybe he proposed to me because he loves me. And so I said, yes, mazel tov. Can you imagine? There's so many stories that you can learn from that. But one of them is that you can actually give someone life. That someone, we, we have no idea how many people we interact with on a, on a, you know, acquaintances on a casual basis who are absolutely at a fork roads in their life and they can go in either direction and how one positive word can put them on the side of life. You know, we have a mitzvah and I'll tell you where we learn it out from in a moment. We have a mitzvah, a very interesting mitzvah. People don't talk about it so much in Judaism, but it's absolutely a Torah mitzvah to imitate God. And where do we learn it out from? Avraham is 99 years old. He gives a bris milah to himself. Okay? At 99, he gives it to himself. And on the third day, which Rashi says is the height of his pain, God comes to visit him. And it's from that is where, by the way, we learn out the mitzvah of Bikr Choli, visiting the sick. And it says, just like God visits the sick, and clothes the naked, and feeds the hungry, we too have to imitate God's ways. Now, what is perhaps the greatest thing that God does? And arguably, the greatest thing God does is give life. Now, can you imagine when you greet another person, you are imitating God and giving other people life? Is that awesome? The opportunity to actually just give people life? You can go around giving people life. Amazing. Amazing, right? Okay, so on that subject, I want to tell you something, and I this is not a morbid story that I'm about to tell you. It might sound a little bit morbid, but I mean it for the opposite, okay? It's a very positive thing. So my son got married a couple weeks ago, today, I guess, two weeks ago today, outside of Tel Aviv, and so Mazel Tov. And, you know, we're doing family photos, and I'm sure you've been to some occasion where there's a photographer, and you know the drill. It's sort of like, okay, you two in this one. Okay, you two out of that. You two come over here. You two are in here. Okay, switch around. Stand here. Okay, now you three out and you three in. And they, they rotate the different permutations. You've all, I'm sure, been in something like that. So since I was the father, I was in a bunch of the pictures. So I'm standing there and I'm just kind of smiling a lot, just standing still smiling. And, you know... I, if I, I'm not thinking about something 
after a period of time, I, I start to go a little bit crazy. So I'm just kind of standing there with a smile on my face and I'm thinking, what can I be thinking about? And this is what came to me. I thought to myself, how many simchas, how many happy occasions have I been to over the years where, unfortunately, sadly, I've heard the following said, if only my father was here at this happy occasion and he couldn't be with us, and people say this very emotionally, usually with tears in their eyes, but I know he's here in spirit, and and it's always like a very moving part of the happy occasion when they talk about, you know, the person who's not there, who, you know, who they would have loved to have been there. And while I'm standing there, you know, and the camera is clicking and I'm smiling, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not that story right now. I'm not that story where they're talking about the dad who we would have loved to have been here but didn't make it. I'm here right now. And it's not, you know, as they say in yeshiva circles, it's not stam. You know, it's not so simple that you're just here. It's, it's, it's meaningful. You, you, it's very hard to wrap your mind around something when you experience it as a given. It's very hard to be appreciative of something when you experience it as a given. And, you know, there's a phrase, but unfortunately it's a cliche, and when I hear it, it just bounces off my head, even though it's a very potent thought, which is taking things for granted. Like, I've heard that so many times, taking things for granted, that I, I don't even know what that means. And it usually suggests that I've done something wrong. Well, you took it for granted. You know, like, who are you to take something like that for granted? Like, you're, you know, you're a bad person for having done that. But what I'm trying to say is something very different right now, is that the nature of the human condition is if you've always had legs, if you've always had arms, it's hard not to take it for granted. Do you understand? Because you've never experienced another reality. So one of the big steps a person can take is when you appreciate things anew, even though you've never lost them. You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, one of the reasons why Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets, the luchos, is so that we should be able to get them back and be able to appreciate that we have the Torah, because if we always had the Torah and never lost it and got it back, we would never appreciate the fact that we have the Torah. In other words, is there a greater concession to the way we think that God went through the entire process? Remember, the Gomorrah and Shabbos says that the Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, was a total setup. It was a setup so that we should fail, so that we should be able to know that we can always come back to God. That there is no generation that's greater than the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And we had to see that even they could fail so that we could forgive ourselves and say, if they could fail and God forgave them, how much more so is it understandable that we can fail and that God will forgive us? But the point being that on some divinely orchestrated way, we did wrong and we have to do tshuva and we have to take responsibility. But nonetheless, we also have to understand in a very deep way that it was a, a divine setup. And that one of the levels of it being a divine setup was that, that we should lose the Torah to get it back, to appreciate the fact that we ever have it to begin with. Now, if you really want to become like, like, you know, like a great person, if you want to grow, if you really want to grow, one of the interesting areas, and this is very, very challenging. So, I mean, I'm not pretending that I'm great at this, by the way. But what I'm about to share with you is, 
is you, you might not even have this as an idea of something that you can work on. So let's just explore this idea together and then hopefully we'll make progress in it. Is to be able to genuinely appreciate those things that you have that have never been taken away from you. And one of the exercises, and I know I'm guilty of rattling through this checklist in the morning, but the morning blessings that we say are really awesome. And if you, if, if we just kind of give it a little bit more time, like another second or two of kavana, and that's all it takes, by the way. I heard Rabbi Graydon say this. What, what's the difference between saying a blessing without any sort of like intention and saying it with real intention? And he said, one second. And it's really true. If you just think for one second before you make the blessing or while you're making the blessing, that can make a major difference between just rattling off words and actually connecting yourself to God. So let's just go over different highlights from that list that we say every single morning. We thank God for our eyes. Like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see. How about... Um, I, I can stand up straight. There are a lot of people who can't stand up. Or, or sit up straight even. Like to be able to stand up straight, that's awesome. And there's so many others. Malbisharumim. You mean I have clothes? It, it's not so simple to have clothes. I learned that back in the day, you were supposed to say them as they happened in the morning. So in other words, when you opened up your eyes, you would say, you would make that blessing that God who, you know, gives us sight. When you stood up straight, when you got out of bed, you would say, you would say it on the spot. And then they were like, okay, people aren't doing it so much. This is getting a little too loosey-goosey. You know what I mean? We've got to kind of institutionalize it and we'll, we'll say them all at once, right? Which I'm sure was a great step forward in some ways. But now it's so easy to go through them and not know that you actually thank God for anything. But what I'm suggesting right now is that if we want to work on this idea of appreciating those things that we've always had and not to have to have them taken away from us for us to appreciate that we have them. That is a great headquarters for us to start, those morning blessings. Because most of us have, have experienced those things continually throughout our life. But here's a chance to sort of like Reclaim gratitude for it. Just kind of standing there, posing for those pictures, smiling, and realizing I'm not dead right now. And again, I don't mean this in a morbid way, the opposite. But I've certainly been to a lot of occasions where the person playing my role in this simcha is dead right now. And I'm not. That's awesome. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me experience this on this side of the curtain of reality. Not that I'd be any less there, but, you know, humanly speaking, yes, I would be much less there, right? So one of the absolute highlights of the whole trip, honestly, was there's this holy man in his probably, I'm going to guess, early 20s, something like that, who is in the old city right now. And I didn't have a chance to meet him. I didn't have a chance to get introduced to him. But, you know, ma making the blessing Shfu this morning is a, is a little bit different from every other day of the year for the reason that there's certain blessings that you don't say. So for instance, if you've been up all night learning, then you don't say Birkas HaTorah. You don't say the blessing of the Torah because you never made a separation by going to sleep. In other words, that's called a, a hefsik. So when you wake up in the morning, then now you have to make a new blessing. But if you never went to 
sleep, then, then there's no reason to make a new blessing. And yet, it's a new day, so you want to make a blessing over the Torah for the new day, but you can't make it because you never went to sleep. So what's the solution? Someone who went to sleep for a half an hour, right, or more, makes the blessing, and then you say amen, and he has you in mind. So, so that's the idea, okay? So this blind man who is like shining, shining, okay, makes the blessing for everyone and all the morning blessings, because while you're making those blessings, you just go ahead and you make all the morning blessings, and then everyone's saying amen. So, but it's the way that he made it, because if I read from a book that's in front of me, I couldn't have said these blessings the way he said them. They flowed out of him like this awesome fountain with this giant smile on his face as he was just bursting with these praises, not stumbling over a single word, a burst of Kedusha, one blessing after another coming out of him, just beaming out of him. It was awesome. What a privilege to see that, a privilege. So, one of the things that I try to do with these talks is to share with you what I'm doing with myself. Like, I, I, I really like this phrase, which is that the person um, putting out the cookbook said, these are all kitchen-tested recipes. I like this idea of kitchen-tested right? What, what, what does that mean? That means that I'm not telling you anything that I am not working on on myself first, right? So anything I'm telling you, I, I myself am working on, okay? And, and so, so the nature of the human condition is that you have ups and downs in everything, by the way, everything, all, all aspects of our lives, we have ups and downs. And, and we have ups and downs with our relationship with Hashem as well. Sometimes we feel closer, sometimes we feel more distance, you know, and, and y y you never want to feel distance. Why, why would you want to feel distance? Like, what, what could be closer to you than God? Like, what could be more important than having, like, the best relationship in, in, in the world with, 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 your, with your best friend in the entire world, right? So if you ever feel as though that there's something getting in the way, you got to work on that. You got, and, and, but here's the tricky part. Sometimes it's not so clear what's getting in the way. And the way I've been thinking about it lately is certain knots can appear in your heart. Certain knots can, I, I mean, knots with a K, K-N-O-T-S, knots can, can appear in your thinking. And how did they get there? You know, it's, it's funny, one of the things, men know this, is before you put on your, your talus in the morning, you put it over your shoulder, and you have to go through the tzitzis, the strings, and you have to make sure that no knots got in the way of them. And you'd be surprised, like, they get knotty. Like, if anyone has ever washed uh, a talus cotton, you know, you'll see they get all knotted, and you've got to unknot them. So what I'm trying to say is the natural process of life creates knots. You didn't sit there tying the knot, but all of a sudden it's like, how did that knot get there? Well, if it's true, it sits us. Imagine how many fringes your heart and your mind have. <laughs> and imagine how they're being swung around and just like, you know, just by life. Like you're going to get knots is my point. So... So the process then is when you have this sort of, you know, existential sense of like, you know, why am I not feeling close? Well, where's the knot? Where's the knot? Remember, when a person goes into the mikvah, and this is more on a level of halacha, more, more, more meaningful for a woman than for a man, by the way, but a woman can't even have a knot in her hair. Do you know that? Because that creates what's called a chatzitza, a separation between her and the water. So, so you see, an, a knot is something that gets in the way of closeness. And if a knot in your hair 
which is not sentient, right, can create a halachic barrier, how much more so a nod in your thinking or a nod in your heart? So we've got to figure out where they are, which takes a lot of work in itself, and then you've got to figure out how to undo them. I heard one time, I don't know if this is a Jewish thing, I, some culture has this, maybe it's Jews too, I don't know. But, but gold chains, you know, women have these necklaces and, and, and some of the necklaces, some of the gold necklaces, the, the, the chains are very, very fine. And those tend to get knotted also. Like when you kind of just put them in a box, all the kind of like chain kind of clubs together. And I don't know how it happens exactly, but they get knotted. And there's some culture where one of the tests of a prospective daughter-in-law is getting at the knot in these gold chains. <laughs> and why? Why? What's the logic of it? Because it takes a lot of patience. So I'm saying that once you identify the knot, getting the knot out is in itself a work of avoda. Okay. So... I'm experiencing a down in my relationship with Hashem. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. Where is it coming from? Where is it coming from? And I hit, these words came to me. While I was walking the streets of Jerusalem, these words came to me. In my life right now, I'm, I'm waiting for a, a number of things to happen. Okay? And... And this phrase came to me, and it was very resonant for me. You ready? It just kind of appeared fully formed in my mind. It should have happened by now. And I thought there was truth there. I just got a little flash of truth. It should have happened by now. You know, all the different things that are pending in my life. One of them, something. And that that's what's causing this knot. And then I thought about it for another few moments. And these words came to me, and they were so healing. I said, who says they should have happened by now? <laughs> like, because I've decided they should have happened by now. That means they should have happened by now. That was revelatory, by the way. And then I thought of a line, which is one of my all-time favorite lines, or psukim, verses from the, from the Torah, from the Tanakh. It's from the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah. He says, in the name of God, this is God talking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And... I love that. I love that to pieces. Because I heard Rabbi Shimon Green, Shlita, say one time that we make a big mistake when we think about God. We tend to think God is a bigger, stronger, smarter version of ourselves. <laughs> he says it's not true. God is beyond, 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 right? Right? God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. And when we say Hashem Echad, that God is one, one of the levels of understanding that in the Shema, right, is that God is unique. And you know what it means to be unique? Unique means there's nothing that we can point to in this world and say God is a bigger, better version of that. There is no parallel to God in this world. God is unique. Or, in the language of Reb Shlomo, beyond, 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 beyond. So when God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, when we say, it should have happened by now, well, who says? Who says? Who says? Now we have to 
understand how to apply a thought like that. Because I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say something very interesting. He said, Judaism is really a sophisticated, right? It's a, it's a very sophisticated pathway. Which means, among other things, that if you want to really live like a Torah Jew, if you want to grasp what the Torah is saying, you really have to master the ability to balance a lot of opposites at the same time. And one of these balancing acts is that you're, you ready for this? That you're belief in God should not be a secret excuse or cover-up for laziness. (laughs) See, a lot of people fall into this trap or they fool themselves into thinking that if I believe in God, I don't have to do anything. And then the Yetzirah can come and take it a step further and go, chutzpah that you should do anything. (laughs) They try to take your most negative trait and turn it into a mitzvah. Look how I'm devoted to God. I'm not getting out of bed till 12 noon. (laughs) I am the greatest servant of God. (laughs) Putting everything in his hands. This is ridiculousness. Or or the way I like to put it sometimes is, is that we say, God... I love you so much. I believe in you so much. You run the entire world. And God says, and you hand the ball, so to speak, to God. And God says, oh, I'm so glad that you know that. I'm so glad that you realize that. And then God hands the ball back to us. <laughs> and we go, no, 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 God. I really, you're really the one. You're doing absolutely everything. And he goes, yes, you're right, you're right. And then he hands the ball back to us. And it never stops. The ball, the ball never, the ball, the ball never doesn't end up back in our hands. Which means that this is one of the great balancing acts to understand God is doing absolutely everything and to never stop working and never stop trying to move the ball forward. Because God is flowing through us, right? And then if we live according to the mitzvot, then that divine flow gets filtered through the pathways of the mitzvot, and then only positivity comes from our actions. You see, it's a famous story. And I I heard this point made by Rabbi Cardozo many years ago. Alfred Nobel, who the Nobel Prize is named after, and it's named after him for good reason, because he endowed the Nobel Prize. He created it, okay? So it's like one of these stories that sounds like, like an O. Henry made-up short story, but it's, this is a real story. He woke up one morning, and he looked at the newspaper, and it had his obituary in it. And he was very much alive. It was a total error. And they wrote about him as the inventor of TNT, which is dynamite. He did create dynamite. That's true. Now, dynamite was, you know, before there were nuclear weapons, it was all about dynamite. I mean, it was one of the, you know, the, like, essential elements of war. And a lot of people die from dynamite, those explosions. And so when he read his obituary, again, which was mistakenly printed because he was very much alive, he realized that he was about to be remembered for the rest of his life as one of the great, you know, purveyors of death in the world. And so he decided to create, you ready for this? The Nobel Peace Prize. He wanted to be known as someone who promoted peace. Because that's where his heart was. He wanted peace in the world. Now, by the way, dynamite has also been a a huge 
aid toward the advancement of civilization. Because with dynamite, you can blow a hole in the middle of a mountain, and all of a sudden, you can make a train connect two different places that, that you wouldn't have been able to do it before. So there's huge benefits to dynamite that have advanced civilization. So the question is, and now we're getting to the real point. You ready? How do I know that the actions that I do in this lifetime are going to yield positive results and not negative results? Did, listen, listen to that clearly, because this is really one of the great one of the great questions of what it means to be a human being in this world. How do I know that the activities that I do during my lifetime are going to be used by society, are going to trigger domino effects in the people around me, in the community around me, in the world around me, in a positive way and not in a negative way? How do I know? And so God gives us this amazing, amazing vehicle called the Torah mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah. And by the way, commandment is like a really sketchy word. Reb Shlomo translated the word mitzvot as, you ready for this? Divine pathways. Right? Each one of the mitzvot are divine pathways. Ways that you can arrange your actions so that you flow in a divine way. And the word mitzvah, which is, you know, the singular of mitzvot, right? Mitzvah actually has as its root tzav, which means to connect. So they're connections. Each one is a, a divine connection. You're connecting in the moment, heaven, heaven and earth. So now let's put it all together. Alfred Noble saw that the dynamite that he put in this world was going to be remembered. He was going to be remembered as one of the great warmongers of human history. And he said, not so fast. He made a fortune from dynamite. He says, you know what? I'm taking a chunk of this fortune and I'm endowing the Nobel Peace Prize because that's what I want to be remembered for. So when a person, each of us has divine life flowing through us. It's flowing through us. But it can be misdirected through our actions. Isn't that crazy? We can take the divine and we can actually corrupt it. The Kutzka Rebbe famously says, where is God? And the intuitive answer is for you to just say, oh, I know, I know, I know, God is everywhere. But he says something so much deeper. He says, God is where you make a place for him. In other words, if, if I'm speaking Lashon Hara and I'm cheating at business, God can be absolutely everywhere. And guess what? It almost doesn't matter. <laughs> because I'm corrupting his presence in this world. He's flowing his life force through me into the world. And I'm misdirecting it. So how do we guarantee that the lives that we live are only going to be channeling godliness in this world in a way that will ultimately be positive? And the answer is, walk down the divine pathways. Through the mitzvot of the Torah, which God tells us is life. Okay, look, we're going to have good days and bad days. We're going to have ups and downs, and we're going to take, we're going to do the Torah sometimes in really obnoxious ways. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen people like attempting to do the right thing. And, you know, they, in trying to do the right thing, they're just biting each other and hitting each other over the head. But, but God is very patient. And he knows what we're trying to accomplish. And if we're focused on making our actions beautiful, remember, 
One of the things that we learn in Pirkei Avos is, do you want to know if God is like, if God likes you, so to speak? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Do people like you? If people like you, that's a good sign that God likes you too. Now, God loves everyone, okay? But it's, it's a very nice thing to work with. In other words, if, if you're doing something in a way where you're doing it for God, and the response that you're getting from everyone is hardcore negativity, ask yourself, am I actually doing that mitzvah in the most beautiful way? Look at the people around you and look at their reactions. And if you're getting negativity and you're eliciting hatred, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the thing anymore, but try doing it in a different way. Because it shouldn't elicit that response. It shouldn't. Because God says about the Torah, all my pathways are peace. So if you're not seeing peace come from them, then you have to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong? And ask a friend, ask a teacher, right? But be sensitive to it, for goodness sakes. So one of the things that Rav Cook says is that, that in the future, every, all people are going to be prophets. That prophecy is going to be restored on this mass level. And I thought about that. And when I first read it, I was very sort of challenged by that idea. Like, like even prophecy itself seems very... It, we're so distant from it. Like... How could it be that a person opens their mouth and God is like flowing through them, right? And, and yet the, the prophet is kind of putting slightly their own stamp of themselves on the words in terms of interpreting the images that they're being shown. You know, like they say, the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu was that he was a clear lens. That's the language of the Talmud. He was a clear lens where other prophets... And I'm talking about true prophets right now, not false prophets. True prophets are like a cloudy lens. So, so the greatness of and the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu, remember, even the Messiah, Mashiach, will not be as great a prophet as Moses. He'll be greater in other things, but Moses remains unique for all times as the greatest prophet ever. It's very important to know. And they liken him unto a clear lens that when it came to speaking God's words, it was exact, an exact transmission. Whereas other people sort of took a little imprint of their personality and their life circumstances, and they explained God's words according to how they understood reality, okay, based on their own personal life circumstances. So the famous thing is between Yeshai and Yecheskel. And you, you, anyway, this is like a very well-trod area in, in Torah, what I'm saying. I'm not saying anything new right now. So what I'm trying to say, though, is that prophecy itself is just such a far-flung idea. And, and the Talmud says that for the last 2,000 years since the destruction of the Second Temple, we haven't had any prophecy. So... So if you want to talk about a prophet, like the Torah talks about a prophet, we haven't had one in 2,000 years. Everyone should know that. You can have what's called Ruach HaKodesh, which is like this sort of like very inspired, like transcendent sort of understanding that's not normal for a human being to have, but it's not prophecy. That's important. Okay, we have, to, we have to acknowledge and respect these distinctions. Okay, we, we are in exile right now. And, and the lack of prophecy is a very concrete example of being in exile. All right, now with that in mind, let's go back to what Rav Cook says. In the future, we're all going to be prophets. <laughs> okay, so I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> like, that just switched around real fast, didn't it? 
And then I thought more deeply about it. And it's like, if you understand that the only thing that exists in the world is God, right? God is all that exists. When we say at the end of the first paragraph of Elenu, Ain Ode, there is no other. That just doesn't mean that there is no other power. There is no other existence other than God. It's all God. It's all God all the time, right? And as I've shared with you before, on the deepest level, all of reality is just God having a conversation with himself. Okay? So it's, it's deep. It's really, really deep. So if that's the case, once, once our Yetzirahs go away, in other words, once our negative inclinations, once that instinct within us to resist the divine flow, or to corrupt the divine flow, or misdirect it, however you want to phrase it, to make mistakes. Let's just put it in the most human, simple way. Once our being flawed humans leaves us, then we're going to be perfectly aligned with the only thing that exists, which is God, which means, of course, we're all going to be prophets. (laughs) How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? Do you understand? So so that is the the direction, you know, like a chiropractor aligns your body, right? So but our 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 life force is going to become aligned with the greater reality which is God. So that we are just going to be just another expression of pure godliness in the world because God is flowing through us, right? Remember, the Kutzka Rebbe says, where, where is God? Where do you make a place for him? In other words, it's just going to flow through us, which means prophecy is going to be something that is going to become the natural, normal order of the day. I believe that's what Rob Cook is saying. Okay. I want to tell you a story, and... And this was one of the most meaningful things that happened to me while I was in Israel. Well, the story's coming, but let me just set it up a little bit. I spent Shavuos night in Israel. And it was, I got to teach two times in the old city in Jerusalem. I taught at Asha Torah, like from... I love the slot. I I keep on saying it because I sort of like, I didn't want to miss it, so I, I... pounded it into my head, 12.40 to 1.10 a.m., okay? So I had had that slot, which was a good slot, right? That's early on before, like, people go to sleep. So, and there were probably 100, 150 people there. And I was really just delighted to, to be able to share Torah with with people there. And, and, and I think hopefully the talk went well. So that was really super meaningful. And then... There's like a happy minion in the old city at Moshe Rothkoff's apartment, if anyone knows him. He's one of the longtime Hasidim of, of Reb Shlomo Karlbach. And I had never been to his shul slash apartment before, but I had heard about it for years and thought, well, that would be a great place to daven uh, Shavuos morning at Nate's, right? Like at the end of the night, like which was around 5 a.m. approximately. So, so I got a slot teaching there as well. But I didn't know where it was. And and so I went up to a couple of kind of old city regulars or Reb Shlomo looking type people. And I, I figured, you know, anyone who's kind of like, you know, a longtime resident of the old city will absolutely know where his apartment is. And it, it won't be hard to find. Anyway, the people I asked didn't know where it was. They were like, you know, hadn't even heard of it. And I started to think, okay, how am I going to find this place? And not only that, but I sent like a WhatsApp to him right before Yontif started or before Shabbos started and and I didn't hear back. So I wasn't even 100% sure that it was going on. So I had a lot of question marks in my mind. Anyway, I'm leaving Asia Torah and, and I'm with this couple who also is going to come with me to the, to the learning at Moshe's ideally, right? If we can find it. They don't know where it is. I don't know where it is. And we take about five steps out of Aish. And 
all of a sudden I just, I don't know, I just kind of got seized with this idea. I just stopped. And I said, we have to pray. You know? Like, and I closed my eyes and I started praying, please God, let me know where this is. Like, like, send me this information that I need. And I'm in the middle of this kind of like very focused prayer, you know, that I should be able to find this place. And then someone calls out my name and I turn around and, you know, in interrupts the prayer, essentially. And it's this person who I haven't seen between five and ten years, <laughs> okay, <laughs> from Los Angeles. Her husband used to run y Eula Boys School. And, and she and my wife were, were friendly. And she's like, hi, how are you? And I'm like, hi, hi, you know. And she doesn't live in Israel. She lives in, a, in America someplace. And, you know, I, I don't know what her connection to the scene is. I don't think she was just at the talk that I just gave. You know, she just kind of appeared literally out of nowhere. And like, you know, while we're kind of just making, you know, just catching up kind of small talk, I'm simultaneously like very distracted because I was like right in the middle of this prayer, like thinking I got to get to this next speaking engagement and, and I don't know where it is. And it's, it's on my mind as I'm talking to her. And then all of a sudden, like it occurs to me, why don't you ask her where Moshe Rothkoff's is? But it doesn't seem like a likely question since she's not part of the scene, right? Like, why should she know? Like, the people who look like they obviously should know didn't know. So I said, hey, by any chance, do you know where Moshe Rothkoff's is? And she says, yeah, I'll take you there right now. And then as we start walking there, she says to me, I actually, we actually gave him our safer Torah. And he was keeping that for us. So can you imagine? It says in the Torah, I will answer your prayer before you finish praying it. And we see that by Eliezer when he's davening for a shidduch, for a marriage partner, for Yitzchak Avinu. Before he finishes his prayer, Rivka runs up in the middle of his prayer. Not only does she know where it is, and is she, she leads me there in a very woundy way, like, but she says she has her safer Torah with him. Like, what is that? What a reminder of the power of prayer, that God hears prayers, and that God has no shortage of messengers. It says the king has many messengers. There is no shortage of messengers. And the rabbis say that prayer is one of those things that's very great that people just don't take seriously. So let's end this for now. There's so much more to share, but we'll just end this for now with maybe doing a little meditation, if you will. And if you want to close your eyes, I'm going to close my eyes. You can close your eyes unless you're listening to this while you're driving, in which case I beg you do not close your eyes. <laughs> but you can pull over by the side of the road if you're really into it. But anyway, let's just close our eyes for a second. And understanding that God answers prayers and God hears all prayers. Just pick something, something that you personally want. Something that you want that you can take and that you can make the world a better place with if you have it. Or maybe it's something that you've just been wanting and you, you never gave it any more thought, like, I just kind of want it, but take a moment to think how that thing that you've just kind of been wanting can make the world a better place, how you can use that to actually make the world a better place if you have it. 
And let's just take a moment right now just to pray that God grants us that thing so that he can flow through that thing, his divine life and his divine energy through us. Remember, we're like that number 50. We're an aspect of the divine. So God can't be closer to you because the essence of you is God, right? We're not God. We're not God. But we're emanations of his godliness. And God is flowing that life through us. And God, please create create that clea, that, that beautiful thing that we desire, and let us use that to serve you with, please God, please God, for your namesake, with the right combination of yira, of awe, and ava, and love, and those should be like two wings connected to this vessel, and it should just ascend to the heavens. Please God, for your namesake. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.